Hello and welcome to Callous Witness, the podcast devoted to personal explorations at the New York Film Festival. I'm your host as always, Ryan Swen, and this is the third Festival Dispatch, the second roundtable panel sort of discussion for the 58th New York Film Festival in the accursed year that is 2020. And uh, we are currently, uh, as we speak, on uh, the death watch for our current commander-in-chief, so apologies we might be a little bit distracted we um our viewing might have been more scattered than usual maybe maybe not uh but definitely very well worth noting a very auspicious time uh, in our current state of affairs uh but we are also at the tail end of the second week of the festival of three and this will be the second to last dispatch and i'm very pleased to have a panel of returning guests I'm Forrest Cardamines. I'm a freelance critic um, covering Swimming Out Till the Sea Turns Blue for Reverse Shot and maybe writing something else about the festival as well. I'm Jeeva Lang. I'm the culture critic at The Week. Uh, I'm CJ Prince. I am a freelance film critic at, uh, based in Toronto, Ontario, and I am uh, also a uh, film programmer for the AGH Film Festival in Hamilton, Ontario. And I'm uh, Jason Miller, and I just like movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, all of us presumably like movies, and that's uh, yeah. why we're here. And there are, uh, we're sort of, as it is sort of the middle point, there might be, and because we have less guests, this might be a little bit shorter podcast, but I think there are definitely some of the strongest films that uh, thus far have played in this week, and I think that there's plenty to talk about them and uh might as well get right into it uh, it seems to have become sort of a tradition now for us to start with the extended extremely long film uh and we have the perfect candidate in frederick wiseman's city hall running a good four and a half hours jason would you like to taste yeah yeah um as per typical more recent Frederick Wiseman fashion. This is a documentary about a specific subject that tends to try and give a, a, a specific overview or cross-section of a wide-ranging subject, this time Boston City Hall, particularly under, uh, under the guise of Mayor Walsh. Uh, it is... A particularly interesting uh, all of his movies are interesting but this one in particular has a has an interesting flavor to it um, it very extensive goes from simple things like community meetings to private meetings to photo ops to turning photo ops into making statements bashing the NRA um, and as the movie continues, it, it's funny because Frederick Wiseman said that he emailed six, I think, uh, mayors to see if he could record four of them didn't respond. One responded no. And the other, uh, the person who opened it at the mayor's office had actually seen Frederick Wise movies and passed it on to their boss, <laughs> who had also seen Frederick Wise movies. <laughs> and I just would like to maybe ask the question, if you have seen Frederick Wiseman movies, 
why did you think a, a documentary about your boss would go over well? Uh, it is a, a particularly frustrating movie. There, there's a, a series of Frederick Wiseman movies that tend to be kind of this bureaucratic fifth or sixth circle of hell. Um, welfare uh, from the 70s of his is, is a perfect example. Um, state legislator. Legislator. Um but this one is a particular um, type of hell in, uh, in that the mayor just really loves being places where he can be seen. Um, and, mm-hmm. and there's this very, very... Um, there's this recurring thing of, like, he keeps just showing up and it feels kind of miraculous and over four and a half hours you kind of get like super sick of him but the interesting thing about the movie is when he doesn't show up and the conversations he's not there for and you suddenly get a little bit more of a sense of actually how this office runs um and as much as he forefronts himself and and so much of the so much of his campaign forward is about optics and oh, look at this specific way we're helping this community. Look at the way we're helping women. Mm-hmm. Look at the way we're helping the, our black community. Look at the way... It's it's all po- a, a lot more pointing than doing it t- sometimes. Uh, and it leads to this very, very interesting portrait of an office with some people who you really feel are actually there trying to do the best to help people and some people who you feel like are using this as a step in a career Mm -hmm. yeah i i would agree with that largely i mean the thing about frederick wisen's films for me and i mean and and i don't want to sound like i take it for granted because when i say it's good i'm like yeah it's good because it's frederick wisen and why would you expect it to not be good um (laughs) which doesn't mean it's just this thing where it's like he has such a really high standard of quality that uh, it, it, you kind of go in with a, with a certain expectation, um, which but I don't want to make it sound like this film is just kind of like, yeah, it's fine, because it's, you know, very good, just within the context of his own filmography. Um, you know, it may not be his top tier, but it's still very good. Um, this is a film that for me, like, I find every time I watch one of his films, there's like a scene, there's like one scene where it's kind of like, I crack the code, so to speak, because at the first mm-hmm. you're kind of like, how is this all going to coalesce? And then there's a scene, and then it's just kind of like, oh yes, like, this is exactly, this is what the film is about. Um, mm. For me, what was really weird was that that scene came, like, I think, like, 20 minutes before the film ended. Um, it's not that, uh, the, the, the film makes points, you know, before that, towards it, but there was the one sequence in particular that I think really uh, intensifies it, which kind of goes to the to the point that Jace is talking about, which is, this this is a film that I think is showing the very clear disconnect between the people at the top versus the community itself. The city mm-hmm. is the city hall or Boston City Hall in particular, but I think the film is really talking about you know local politics or just politics in general. Is just it, there is a massive disconnect between the people running the city and the actual needs of the community. They go in and they talk about like 
oh, we need to, you know, he's like, I want to talk to all the Latino workers in the city, and, and then, oh, I want to talk to all the, the you know, the, the women and talk representation, but it's like, they're not actually engaging with the city in any way mm-hmm. whatsoever. They're just looking at, like, they're just looking at them as groups, and they just have to say the right thing or show the right thing to appeal to those specific groups. And there's a scene towards the end where, you know, as Jay said, like, the mayor's not there. It's entirely about a, a dispensary that's opening up yep. a business. Um in, in, in Dorchester. In Dorchester, <laughs> yes. Any Boston heads listening would know. That. I don't because I'm in Canada, but um, it's uh, and and it's a really heated exchange, and it's you can see how, like it's it's a much different scene in terms of how it plays out compared to most of what we see beforehand because these are people and the and the concerns they bring up are like very valid and like speaking to the very like day to day experiences they have and it's not looked at in this kind of like zoomed out perspective that doesn't really help them in any way whatsoever so the film is so i mean you know talking about that it's like yes the film is expected of of frederick weisman i mean you would hope to get something pretty rich and in depth out of a four and a half hour experience and he delivers on all that obviously Mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean for me it's it's a film that i'm kind of like it's it's rarely say it's rarely it's rare to say that it's easy to sit through like a four and a half hour film. So there are times where it's like, yeah, it's a four and a half hour movie, but it's also good. Right. Yeah, I agree. And I, I do think this is definitely very typically strong. Though I think I still am sort of finding my way into this sort of, into Wiseman in general, but especially the sort of late period, like expansive canvas, that sort of thing. And uh, but I do think this is definitely... I think that scene especially is exactly like the thing that the film is trying to work towards and like the thing that you sense underneath all of the sort of pleasantries of uh, Mayor Marty and his uh, Bugs Bunny powers. Uh, and I think that, uh, yeah, I, I, it's definitely the case where also I think that the, um, like actually watching it sort of in this virtual space uh, on the platform definitely had some effect because I was, I started it literally five hours before the uh, 24 hour um, window viewing window expired. Uh, so I was definitely under a, a, you know, sort of like a anxiety of sorts, you know, just trying to make sure that like, you know, in, in case my internet went down or anything like that. So you do have to sort of take those things into account, but it is definitely, I think that there are, I think it's, it alternates really well between, you know, these sort of more official, more, bureaucratic sort of moments i think that even more than usual there are these very extended sort of uh, meetings especially between him and his his council or people talking about budgeting and so on and so forth and there are also these like sort of really wonderful scenes of like someone coming to inspect a building that's being built or the very lovely uh scene with the uh, with the people with the parking ticket hearings which are very very well handled like and you get a sense of just the sense of of the way that these people interact like both within and without the the sort of context of this thing where where the fines are they might not seem like much but to but but based on the context that people are are in and what they've been given for it can accrue this very meaningful uh, capacity um so it's definitely the case where i think because it's so long and because there are uh because it covers such a broad 
because I, I think something that also confused me about was because it's just called City Hall, even though probably less than an hour of the film actually takes place within City Hall. And like, I, I get what you say, Jason, about like the sort of like this and CJ about the disconnect between City Hall and the actual city itself. But like, it's sort of a thing that I was trying to reorient myself con- uh, throughout the film. So like, I definitely plan to see it again soon, soonish, and it is being released pretty soon, uh, virtually, I believe. But uh, yeah, it, it is. I did love it, but like, it sort of thing where you're sort of working your way into it until that scene that comes four hours in yeah when this film started i was like i i was very i dragged my heels watching it because it is such a big investment Mm -hmm. and i was like i'm starting the film i'm like it'll be fine like i watch a frederick weissman film it's fine like it's not going to be like you know a tough thing i'll just have to get into the rhythm and then like the first the opening is like here's a 15 minute budget meeting scene and i'm like (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's what i said at the but it's good Right, right. And it's like it provides valuable insight. And it's and it's as you brought up, it's smart to bring up the the parking ticket section because it's not as though Wiseman is like wildly condemning every single person in this large department. There's these very <laughs> wonderful human moments of those or a a lesbian couple getting married. Mm-hmm. Um all of these different smaller parts of City Hall that are that are functioning and and really are there to help people and mm-hmm. you can tell there was like this the these people got into this to actually help people but it feels like the further you go up that chain of command the further away from the actual material needs of people that you end up getting in this place and it, it gets to mm-hmm. even the point cj obviously brought up the massive dorchester dispensary scene which is fantastic it's like 20 25 30 minutes long and yeah. and really lets the community speak and 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 right. give their valid concerns but there's points even before that there's a elderly there's a, a meeting of elderly people and the mayor himself is there mm-hmm. and they're asking questions and the mayor is like we have the office of of uh, elder affairs we'd like you to go to those for a lot of the problems and stuff like that and this woman asks this very specific question of hey I have uh, this one medication I need to take it I can't not take it it's copay $60 I can't afford that what do we do and the mayor gives this like long winded explanation about how that ultimately is something that we need to really tackle legislatively yeah. because the way that the FDA is regulated, there's really nothing on a city level. We, and it's just like, you're just like, dude, like, I understand why you're saying this, but what can you do to help her not die? Mm. And it's this disconnect that's all over the movie of, of these people who, like, are there to help, but ultimately, like, allow themselves to be hamstrung to some degree by the authority that they're given they are given certain authorities Mm -hmm. and certain powers and there's ultimately this part where you know what i'm okay with some people dying of this i'm okay with Mm -hmm. some level of homelessness i'm and it's it's these the these implicit complicities if you will that that Mm -hmm. are surrounded around these offices that uh make it very frustrating because 
you don't necessarily look at anyone in this movie and you're like, you're a bad person. Like, there's nobody really, there's no outward villain other than people who let themselves not listen to people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, like, it traces those in that Wiseman way where it is just, like, hovering under the surface of most that we've seen until it finally erupts. And I think that it's, it's it's, it's done extremely well like it's just it's it's paced in in that particular way uh yeah i think that uh we'll probably move on but i just do want to say that somehow four and a half hours is enough to acclimate for the most part to boston <laughs> accents uh so good on it for that <laughs> uh moving on to a film from the current section uh this is a film i haven't seen but i'm curious to hear about uh, as with a lot of the current section uh but this is My Mexican Bretzel, directed by Nuria Jimenez. Uh, Jeeva, would you like to take this? Yeah, this is a really interesting film. Um, it's one that when I watched it the first time, I went into it knowing nothing about the film. And I actually don't recommend taking, doing what I did. I would read a little bit about the film first. Um, it's mm-hmm. foot, It's fa- uh, found footage that the um, is of the director's grandparents. Um, and it's given a fictional, it's, um, a fictional diary is kind of applied on top of this in, um, text and the film is mostly silent or there's very, very little sound, minimal sound. Um, and it is very interesting. Um, it's really beautiful and lyrical. Um, I watched it when I watched it the first time, I had no idea what was, real or constructed which i think is probably part of the point um even at the end you're kind of given a little bit of um misinformation um if you go back and like are reading about the film again um and yeah it's really mesmerizing it's a really beautiful little film uh first you also saw it right yeah did anyone else see it no, just two of us? Okay. Yeah, so Jiva watched it first and then told me, like, to read up about it first. And the first thing I saw was people saying, like, oh, like, it's not what you expect. There's a twist. And I was like, ah. So, like, so I started it. And I was like, ah, so all of this probably isn't real. Like, it's probably a made-up diary. Um, I had, so sort of, I actually kind of had the opposite inclination. I wish I didn't know that um, going in. <laughs> Um, sorry for any <laughs> listeners who come down on my side of this as well. Um, can we retroactively apply a spoiler tag to this discussion? Um, it's, I mean, it's, you can't talk about the movie otherwise. But um, this is... Yeah, I saw this film premiered at Rotterdam. It's definitely like a Rotterdam type of movie. There were other movies like this that mm-hmm. I saw that are kind of like, here's some like archival footage found footage etc and like let's put a story over it type of thing um it was like some interesting structuring thing with like the the guru who's mm-hmm. quotes the fictional main character kind of uses to sort of justify or explain things that are happening um i had i guess i just had trouble getting into this like beyond what like the I don't want to call it the gimmick because the gimmick is a crew. The conceit of it is, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's just like okay, you're sort of 
you want this footage to be out there and you want some kind of story applied to it but you don't want it to be your own grandparents because it's a little bit personal so like you make one up but I don't know I almost I'd be curious about the real story I'm almost more curious about the real story mm -hmm. than like the fictional story on its own terms like what's interesting about it to me is that it's fictional on top of actual found footage and not like what's actually going on within this fictional story i'd rather kind of hear the real deal personally and it's it's completely silent right? um, one of the things i thought was really interesting about this film was the use of sound in it um or lack thereof i watched this movie mm -hmm. like in our bedroom in the dark like almost just like a like visual like asmr experience or something just like letting the images like wash over mm -hmm. me with kind of like this sensory deprivation around me. Um, and it's kind of interesting to think of in the context of this year's New York Film Festival, because I think it would play, like I was lucky to have kind of this, um, I think Forrest was tutoring in the other room. So there was like a little bit of like conflicting sounds when I was, um, I live with Forrest, um, but there's a little bit of conflicting sounds <laughs> when I was watching it. And I like, clearly that wouldn't be intentional, but I'm always curious about like how much of this um, like how much are you supposed to be like hearing the sounds around you of like a theater? Um, mm -hmm. Just because it seems very much like a film that's supposed to play out of in a festival setting as opposed to like on your laptop in your bedroom while your boyfriend's tutoring in the other room. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about the sound, but yeah. So I watched this in a very different situation. I was in a living room that's street side, and so like there was the sounds of like traffic and stuff going by, and it was daytime, so like maybe part of the reason I couldn't get that into its whole deal is because like environmentally it was difficult um, watching mm -hmm. a virtually silent film when you can hear street noise probably isn't great so this is I think a good example of like the festival part of the festival is really missing mm -hmm. it would be nice mm -hmm. to have that yeah definitely uh, another film I'm, I'm curious to see it definitely uh Another film that uses its own brand of silence is Timing Liang's Days. Uh, his sort of unexpected but also long way to return. Uh, CJ, would you like to take this? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's size return to like a, a more a narrative film. Right, I don't right. want to say conventional featured, narrative. Featured narrative, yeah. There's nothing really you know, conventional. It's only conventional within size's own work, I guess. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's... Um, yeah, I mean, he's been making... So so he made Stray Dogs in, I think, 2013 or 14, which was 15. his, like, he announced that as, like, I'm done with, like, you know, narrative uh, filmmaking. And, but he's still been making films. He was doing his, his Walker shorts um, and the medium-like Journey to the to the West with Danny Levan. And then uh, recently he did Your Face, which is this really lovely um, sort of documentary, I guess. Yeah, pretty um, he's done VR work yeah. and installation work. So, yeah, he's back to, to you know, he's back to narrative uh which is this you know it's it's going to be very simple and, and a lot of size work always is this idea of isolation and solitude and, and you know sadness and depression and these characters who are kind of alienated and then um the film his films usually climax on this moment of connection between these alienated characters it's the same idea here although he does a slight shift um because it's about these two men uh, one of them played by Lee Kangsheng, who is, you know, size like, you know, Muse and 
often publicly professed crush of size for decades now. Oh, but, uh, <laughs> I mean, he made a whole movie basically like that uh, about about his love for him. But um, so yeah, it's just there. It's, it's you know, Lee Kang Shang is this older man with health problems, and then uh, there's a younger man. Unfortunately, I forget the actor's name right now. Um, who is the um, who you know, which is kind of living his own solitary existence. And then the two of them meet for this uh, sexual encounter of sorts I think it's a mas- I don't know if it was intended for that or like some people said it's just a massage that ended up turning into something more uh, the film kind of lays these things out for people to I guess take it as they wish um, but that happens around the halfway mark or the midway part of the film and then, then it kind of shows them going back to their usual ways of life um, so more of a shift for Sai to kind of put this at the, as this, at the center of the film and then kind of see the after the, 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 what happens after um, but it's a very, I mean, I, Sai's one of probably my favorite working directors right now. And, uh, I always really thoroughly enjoy his work. Um, and this is, you know, a very enjoyable film, one of my favorite films of the year. Um, it's just, you know, Sai knows how to shoot a movie. Like, the, the shots in this thing are, are gorgeous. I think that that centerpiece sequence is, you know, amazing in itself in so many ways. He always pulls off those scenes really beautifully in his films. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, for lack of a better term, you know, it's a mood, you know, um, so yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan of it, but I am biased because I totally am in love with Sai's work. He's one of the, you know, premier great directors working today, without a doubt. Um, and this film is, you know, by the standards of basically anyone else, very good. And I don't, I mean, by his standards, it's good too, but it's a little bit, you know, lesser, nobody can see me doing air quotes, as I mentioned last week, lesser sigh, you know, for me, uh, I think it's a little bit too distilled. Like a lot of his works are about alienation and solitude, but you know, the river wraps that up in this kind of stir text about, you know, Westernization. Uh, there's like these apocalyptic overtones in some of his other films. Goodbye Dragon Inn is also about movies um, and kind of the apocalypse. Uh, and this one is, just felt mm-hmm. very much like the one issue playing out and as a result all of the durational shots just kind of feel very much like oh so the point of this is like he's alone and he's doing all this stuff and it takes a really long time and you get that on both ends of the film and I feel like there's a lot less context and like things to grapple with in this one than in a lot of his other work see I when I first saw this film, I agreed with you, Forrest. I also came across as thinking it's kind of like one of his lesser movies. Um, but I have completely changed my mind on this movie. Um, like, I think even since publishing things where I was talking about it being kind of a lesser sci film, like, the more I've thought about it, the more I've really grown to love this movie. Um, I think in part because um, I think there is a tendency in some slow cinema now to be durational just because it can be like just because this is like a mode of like artistic storytelling that's kind of in vogue in certain circles um and this really felt like there was no other way this particular story could be told um like the best comparison or most obvious comparison is to like Jean Dielman, the way that like that is a movie that is about like mm-hmm. this woman's domestic life and you need to feel like the endurance of like her day or like how like menial these tasks are that she's doing and like 
to me, part of what was really cool about Days is just, like, it's a movie about men passing time until they can see each other again, um, lovers passing time until they get to see each other again, and it's the period before that, the meeting, and then the period after that is, like, the entire construction of the film, and it, ha like, the only way you could tell that story is, like, exactly what um, size filmmaking is, like, so equipped to do, um, and I think there's just something really, like, satisfying about like a mode of storytelling fitting so well the story that it's telling that's too neat for me like i agree with all of that but I mean, this is the same reason i mean john dealman is obviously a landmark film and you know maybe it's the first film to really do that kind of thing at least to that extent but i like other chantal ackerman films better i think they do her i don't want to her style i'm not going to use the b word um, <laughs> of durational cinema better and they bring in other things to think about um, obviously La Captive Almer's Folly um, Meetings of Anna um, down there are all I think really remarkable films that are they, they for me they're they're meatier there's more to chew on and the same thing um here with days versus stray dogs or the river or the hole or goodbye dragon and like I, f I find more to chew on like the fact that you have to think a little bit more about why those films are told that way makes them more rewarding for me you find i think more possible answers uh with that open up the different things that happen in the film to greater and lesser extents whereas with this one it's like oh, it's because of this, and then everything clicks into place. And it's like, ah, which is great, but it's greater the other way. I do think that something that adds to that feeling is there is, as you always said, there's like this usual stir text to... Oh. <clears throat> hey, I'm not <laughs> muted anymore. All right. Uh I think something that adds to that feeling is you talk about the surtext that's always that's always there uh, in a lot of sci films, um, almost all of them, um, and that is that as much as sci films look at our interior focus, they also have this mirror bouncing out in the exterior, and it's this interplay that's happening between the sets and the locations that he's shooting in and the people who he's making these movies about. I mean, that's what's so great about The Hole or Stray Dogs or choose, choose any time movie, really. Um, something about this is it is a little bit more emotionally focused. Um, I think the range of emotion is a little bit different than you would see in most Psy movies. Uh, it, it is weird to talk about this in any ways, like maybe slightly being more conventional because on a sliding scale this is not at all but there is a there is a, 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 a this really interesting emotional through line happening through the movie of these burdens that people are 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 saddled with particularly size pain which by the way apparently is a real thing get well si uh, get well uh, Li Keqiang uh mm -hmm. Apparently he suffered a mild stroke. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. so hope he hope he gets better. But like the acupuncture and stuff like that you see in the beginning are all actually like real things he was going through. Uh, 
I actually do think that the beginning of the film is a little somewhat meandering, which supposedly Sai filmed a lot of it without knowing exactly what the stuff was kind of going towards, mm-hmm. uh, and then found the thrust of it later. Um, but particularly Li Kang Shang's relationship with the other uh, younger gentleman in the movie, played by Anang Hong Huesi. Mm-hmm. All right, I'll give myself a C minus on that one. Uh, <laughs> I think they both do a really excellent job of of playing off of each other and there is this really intense complexity of deep emotion that's happening that's a little bit more fleshed out. So I, I don't know that the, the movie isn't about depression or poverty or you know all of the things that every side movie is kind of about. Anytime he points his camera, I think that's where his head is at to some degree. Um, but I think on the sliding scale, I think this one kind of tilts a little bit more into the emotional through lines of specific people telling this hyper-specific queer narrative that is transactional at the same time that it is very intimate and, and wonderful. It's, it's all of these things at once. That is what makes their, you know, their ultimate, um, interaction and, and, and climax so powerful in the movie is that ultimately it is all of these different factors just stacked on top of each other and mm-hmm. and pushing out this entire one really cathartic wonderful exchange between two people which yes may be transactional but the movie obviously goes to great lengths to suggest it isn't only transaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I uh, do want to shout out the the uh, Nif talks with uh, the talk that they had that Dennis Lim had with Sai, where he did cite that like specifically that it's less anguished or complicated than like the sex or sexual interactions, like less uh, complicated or anguished because it's purely transactional, and so it can be like more enjoyable and emotional and intimate. Uh, and yeah, I. I, I I do want to shout out the the Nif talks which that I've seen which have been wonderful. Uh, shout out to uh, friends of the podcast Maddie and Devika for their wonderful work so far. Uh, and yeah, I do agree with a lot of what what's been said about days. I do think it's it's my favorite film of the festival thus far, while still being sort of like mid upper tier. Tsai, I think if that's a sort of valid way of putting it, I think that it is. It's definitely. I think I think there are definitely less complicating factors, like aside from say the sort of, you know, the sort of piecemeal piecemeal history of its production and the sort of documentary as quality of a lot of its first half. Um, I do think that he is able to get at just exactly like the the contrast and differences. And I think that what has been overlooked, and I've sort of know this already but i think that what's been really overlooked is how anong anong sort of is integral to is integral to the film and even though obviously the connection is magnificent as usual and even more pained in anguish than usual uh I, i think that anong brings this really interesting presence and i and from what i've from what i've come to understand is that uh that he's 
basically intended to be Tai's next muse. I don't know if that's still going to be in conjunction with Lee or not, but I think that it's absolutely essential for understanding exactly what the film is going for and the sort of extremely erotic fixation that that he had that Tai has on on uh, Anong, and I think that it because of that like it lends all these different scenes just the scenes like the 10 minute long scenes of him cooking in his underwear in his uh his apartment or like his his small apartment like this kitchen slash bathroom sort of area i think it lends all these scenes just this extra charge that when combined with lee's scenes uh, like it gives it this very clear-cut division between the sort of almost innocence or responsibility versus the sort of solitary but also sort of like slightly pampered living of Lee just living up in the mountains. So I, I do think that in because it's going for that so clearly, it's a bit limited compared to The Hole or Goodbye Dragon Inn or Stray Dogs. But it's but because Ty's one of the great filmmakers ever for that sort of exactly that sort of mood or that sort of subject matter i think it's very it's it's quite great i think uh and it it just looks <laughs> gorgeous even even like even just the documentary scenes are just so just the the way he manages to film them under tables or through bars is just it's it's wonderful um moving back to the current section this is uh my name is europa directed by no sorry her name was europa directed by uh anya dorniden and juan david gonzalez monroy uh for us would you like to take this um this is one about the trying to back trying to breed back the kind of cow right yeah yeah um i watched this movie a while ago and uh, the subject is interesting and it does something strange at the end and I wasn't quite sure why and I, I, I don't I don't to some, if somebody else saw it and has like something to say to then I can really get going but I don't, I don't have anything I think I think it's just Shiva. yeah I got you um no so this was one of the films I was most excited to see going into the festival just because I thought the subject matter was like super interesting um and the subject matter is super interesting. It's about, sort of, as much as it is about something, it's about, um, it's kind of constructed around these German um, cattle breeders, um, or I think they were zoologists or something, um, who are trying to breed back cattle to an ancient version of cattle that like lived around Europe. Um, and throughout the course of the film, you like visit the surviving versions of these cattle that died off. Most of them were killed in World War II. Um, and one of these cattle is like reconstructed. Um, and the film also visits like these other versions of kind of artifice or like trying to grasp for something real in ver the version like in the version of like a resort that's like built to look like a paradise but it's all inside like a um i think it was like a balloon hanger um yeah. <laughs> and it's the way this is all told is there's like the 
footage, the documentary footage, and then there's like these inner title sections that are actually like, um, I don't even know what you call them. It's like what, like those old um, projectors we had in like elementary school, if you're as old as I am, that were like plastic that you would put on the thing that had the text and it like, Mm -hmm. yeah, it was like that. Yeah, Yeah, overheads. It's like an overhead, overhead text Mm -hmm. inner titles. Um, That was kind of interesting. Um, And I think I, like, I ultimately land with Forrest. Like, I'm not quite sure what to do with all of these pieces. Other than that, like, I'm, I know I'm supposed to be being told something kind of about, like, artifice and like ways of seeing what is real and i'm not entirely sure like i came up with like the same conclusion that it wanted me to but like i enjoyed watching it um i learned a lot even though Mm -hmm. i did a very bad job summarizing it specifically um (laughs) but yeah Yeah, that was good so so it's (laughs) like how is it all like is a good portion of it reenactment at all or is it it's mostly, if I recall correctly, text on the screen, right? You get, like, they tell you what happened in, like, text on the screen. Or, like, you read pages from books at points and things like that. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, uh... And then there's sort of, like, the documentary footage where they go in and are, like, looking at the current mm. versions of these cows. Um, and when I was saying, like, the reconstruction, um, it's, like... He goes to a um, a studio that it appears, although you're not told specifically, it appears as a kind of studio that does like movie um, like props and things. Like they build like mm-hmm. things that are needed for like fictional stories. Um, I think like you can see like they're working on like monsters and stuff in the background or like people's faces, um, and they like they construct like this cow and take out into the like woods of Europe and like photograph as if it was um, mm-hmm. one of the originals. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that definitely sounds curious just to see all those little ple- pieces mm-hmm. coming together or perhaps sort of hanging in, in hanging around, swirling around a cloud or something like that. Uh, next film also in uh, black and white. Uh, this is, the, the new film from in the main slate by Philippe Gorel, The Salt of Tears. Uh, Jason, would you like to take this? Yeah, sure. Uh, this is the most recent entry. Muted. In... <laughs> I'll learn one day how Skype works. <laughs> uh, this is the latest entry in Philippe Gorel's black and white. Uh, co-written with Jean-Claude Carrière uh, stories about how much the youth suck and how much it sucks to be young, I guess. Um, This one in particular, I I actually quite enjoyed the last two Philippe Garel movies, In the Shadow of Women and uh, Lover for a Day, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Quite enjoyed both of those. This a little bit less so. Um, there's a, there's an attempt of this movie to almost dip into, like, Romero-like, you know, moral, moral territory, uh, of, of Mm. of being this moral tale. Um, Mm -hmm. but really when it boils down to it, it is basically just a movie about an insufferable person. 
who's just like a just like a bad person, dude. And the movie has this frustrating element where it has a lot of things that Philippe Garel is is really really excellent at these these really really great rhythms of time passing and jumping and moving and and when you're when you're living the way that time and space just constantly shift and and you're living here and then you're suddenly living there and then you're suddenly in a relationship with this person all of these events seem to be starting and stopping at indiscriminate points and everything is happening at once and he has this really great av- mm-hmm. ability as a, as an editor to 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 really evoke that uh there's a there's a very lovely scene of people in a club dancing to a song that nobody in a club has ever danced to <laughs> um, but it's uh it's got a lot of hallmarks of of exactly kind of what you would want to go to Philippe Garel for but I really feel as though the scenario that they have they have come up with and executed um not entirely without its own worth but really a significantly less engaging uh telling of of this kind of young love i know you might have i know you enjoyed it a good bit about more than i (laughs) yes i did but i'll I'll let others go first I'll, i'll go first it's um I would call this film, for me, uh, a grower, I guess, because uh, I, I've been thinking a bit better on it after watching it. Initially watching it, I was... Um, it's very typical of Lee Grell from his recent output. It is, um, for lack of a better word, kind of draggy, I think, at certain mm-hmm. points. This is a you know this is a much longer film in comparison to his, some of his previous stuff, which usually hits like a... A, a nice 70 minutes but this, is yeah. like a, mm. this is like a little you know about a hundred ish so um <laughs> sound like great turkington but anyway it's um, <laughs> it's it's so it, it's a bit longer and um it, it took a bit of time for it to go but i mean it's it's one of these things where uh weirdly enough it was the ending of the film that kind of really made me pause and think back on it because the mm. way the film's ends which it kind of just abruptly stops and it has this very um i think the final line especially is really sad and it kind of comes out of nowhere right. compared to everything beforehand and then it kind of made me think about how this film is defining itself and you know and, and i think yeah it's this guy who's just an awful he's just a he's just a douchebag i mean he just yeah. he sucks and you know, he just, he, he can't take responsibility, but in the way that the film stops and where it stops, I feel like it's also about this, this particular character at a, at a stage in his life where he has this kind of stasis and people are coming in and out of his life and things are not exactly majorly disruptive. Things are changing, but in ways that, you know, fit within, you know, whatever he wants his life to be at the time. And if anything threatens to disrupt that, which happens, he kind of finds his way to dismiss it or mm-hmm. not evolve. And then the film basically very, it basically ends at the exact moment where that is no longer possible and that everything mm-hmm. kind of collapses for him and he has nowhere to go but to change his life entirely. And that, I've thought about that after the film and that's kind of, 
made it go up a bit in my estimation. Maybe I'll see it again someday, I'm not sure. Um, but generally, I mean, yeah, it's it's beyond that, it, it's typical, you know, growl and stuff. And I do want to specifically mention, I, I really like um, Ulaya Mamra's performance in mm-hmm. this. Because I, I really liked her back in Devine. She yeah, I think that was an incredible performance. I think that was her first one, and I've been wanting to see her again. Um, and she takes a role that, that's, I think, quite small in this film and does a lot with it to really, you know, define herself as a, as a really sympathetic character. Which one is she? So, yeah. Uh, she's the first woman gotcha, that he gotcha. encounters. The first, she basically, she's basically written to be a victim, um, yeah. but I think she does so much more with that role mm-hmm. um, than, than what's just on the page. So. Alright. Um, I... Likeability of characters does not matter. Like, I don't, it's not an important, mm-hmm. um, like, determinant in a movie. But that said, I don't think I've ever watched a movie where I have hated the main character more than this one. <laughs> I just, like, like completely, like, could not stand him. Um, thought he was a horrible person. Like, we've all touched on that. But it was just, like, way too much for me. Forrest and I actually had, like... A little bit of an argument after we finished this film because I was just like <laughs> I have no patience for it um, I do not like at this point care about hearing a story about a white guy who has like these women troubles with like these people who are basically like objects who float through his life that he is like is supposed to learn from or something um, and just like um, like really had like uh, um, like, aggressive dislike of this movie, um, which, like, I think in and of itself is interesting, like, that it got such an emotional reaction from me to the point where, like, when Forrest was saying he liked it, I was, like, taking it really personally, um, so, like, it'll be interesting to hear what he has to say now after, like, we were kind of like, well, we're just gonna disagree on this, um, but, yeah, no, this was a really, like, it really rubbed me wrong, um, which, like, is always interesting, so... Um, mm-hmm. yeah, so, I mean, can we, are, are we not allowed to say fuckboy on the pod? Is that word not cool anymore? Yeah, like, I, no, you can say it. Fuckboy, right? It's, like, let's, let's put yeah, that yeah, out yeah. there. Like PG-13 tag, reasons. we've used two of our <laughs> F words, we got one left. Um, and... I don't mind. <laughs> and, but I think what CJ said is right on the money. This is a movie that ends at the perfect moment and sort of makes right. you think back on what like what is this movie really concerned about with this guy and uh, yeah it's somebody who is always trying to like push away anything that forces him to like do anything major or different with his life and then suddenly being put into a situation where like he can't be like things have to change now um and it was you know you see him throughout the movie takes everything for granted but at no point really is it apparent that the subject of the film is itself the taking of things for granted and until I think the end of the movie uh, which is really great another great thing about this movie is it has an incredible scene hilarious scene where the main character who's a uh, furniture joiner is applying to a, to a school so he can get the cabinet making <laughs> and he's there with two other people taking like this oral test and the, the furniture maker guy is like first question is like what period like he's got like a chair on the desk that they're like working on it's like a chair in construction and he's like what period is this chair from and one of the guys is like ah oh, it looks like it's from like the 19th century <laughs> <laughs> 
it's like a challenge being made right there. The the test of this was like, you're an idiot. It's being made today. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the la most I've laughed at a movie in a while. So in addition to being extraordinarily funny at exactly one moment, um, it's also a movie that it ends really well. And is I don't know, like I think Garel is willing to trade a sort of this. Richard Brody, I think, put it really. We said he trades thinness of, of observation for like the abstraction of powerful emotions um mm. and like yeah as much as i want to not like this guy's movies because they're a dime a dozen um this one in particular like jason said is like very much like a rumor moral tale i can't help but think like he's a pretty good filmmaker like i like what he's yeah. doing and like yeah it'd be awesome if you know people had money to tell other kinds of stories instead of Philippe Garrel literally making the same movie for like the eighth time in a row um, but also like the budget of this movie would fund literally one other movie like it's not like oh do yeah. we instead of Garrel <laughs> we could have like you know dozens of people from diverse backgrounds no instead of Garrel we could have one other person making one movie instead of Marvel <laughs> movies we could have dozens of other people making dozens of different movies so like let's keep our keep our eyes on the prize there um, but yeah like as much as I want to hate this movie it's like oh, I like it this is good this is a good filmmaking by a talented filmmaker yeah I feel I feel largely the same way I think that it it, it definitely like I think because of its structure it both is inherently like well I, I do agree that it's odd that he chose to sort of elongate his running time like for this like for it, for this specifically I, like it sort of makes sense because it's sort of pinballing between three different lovers essentially uh well or like they're sort of overlapping in um in the, in the film structure but like so you sort of need that extra run time at the same time it does feel a little bit slack and i i don't it's been a while since i've seen in the child of women and lover for a day so i don't really know how i'd feel about them now i think i liked this one about as much as those um but like those definitely felt you know speedier and you know hong sing Su's still in still doing 70 minute films he has won this festival so it's you know like i don't know why corral elongated here but that being said i do think that it just has this sort of like i like its rhythms i like the way it's um, I, I I like his use of you know black and white thirty five scope, um, and it I I and I think that the the dance club dance sequence like, does sort of crystallize exactly what I like about it and like how he's willing to make his rhythms like al allow for a scene like this and then and then you know con continued unpleasant trees immediately afterwards uh, and. Yeah, and and I and I do especially really like the the like his entire relationship with his father and also his old high school friends um relationship with his father because it's so clearly warm and it's so clearly felt and lived in um and I think that you know because it's so it's pinballing between all these different uh characters it can leave um some characters feeling a bit slack or a bit neglected which i don't think is ne necessarily meant to be as irresolute as it is but i think on the whole i do definitely uh i, d I did definitely like it though i'm still also sort of working through it also i i one other comment i do want to just say about it is mm -hmm. that like chiva said it's like 
it's not like likability of a character at this point <clears throat> is something that really is like a hurdle. Uh, and I do agree that the last moments of the movie are particularly crushing in a very unique and interesting way. Um, there's a degree in which I got that at a certain point in the movie. And then there mm-hmm. was like another hour of the movie of this person just being <laughs> a terrible person. Uh, and, and I, you know, I, we call him a fuckboy or there's like two pretty actively reprehensible slash gross things that he does, which are genuinely like, not like, oh, he cheated on somebody, but like significant steps further in a negative direction than that. That is true. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, the, and, and it is a degree of it's like, I ultimately like agree that where it ultimately goes is, is worthwhile. Uh, but it's basically, you know, this watching a a character like Sisyphus just pushing a pushing it up, and then at the end the boulder lands on him. You know, and it's like, okay, I appreciate where we kind of ended up, but I don't know that we. I, I I don't know about the whole journey. But you said that's it better really than I did. Was the yeah. best in, yeah. was the best investment of my time. Anyway, Philippe Grell's a good filmmaker. We all know this, yeah. but yeah, not this one. I, I just, love that metaphor. Pe- people should should use that more. <laughs> Sisyphus <laughs> getting crushed by the boulder. <laughs> uh, a, f- a film that I know she would like much more uh, is Nicolas Zuckerfeld's There Are Not 36 Ways of Showing a Man Getting on a Horse from the current section. I love this movie Jiva. so much. Um, yes. Yeah, so this is a film that... Um, is kind of divided into halves. It isn't kind of divided into halves. It's divided into halves. Um, the first section mm-hmm. is um, a collage of um, different moments from Raoul Walsh films. And then the second half mm-hmm. is um, a narration that kind of explains why you have just seen this collage of um, different movie clips. And the reason I think I loved this movie so much is because um, we're all, like, pretty serious film lovers. Anybody listening to this podcast is going to be a pretty serious film lover. Anybody seeking this movie out is going to be somebody who loves films. And this movie is just, like, about those people. Like, it speaks to those people. It's about somebody (laughs) who becomes obsessed with this quote from Raoul Walsh. Um, and tries to get to the bottom of it, and in doing so, like, connects with all of his, like, film friends across the globe, trying to, like, find, um, like, different sources in all these, like, now-defunct and extinct film magazines that are, like, um, varying degrees of legendary to any of us watching the movie now, um, and, like, like, uh, like, diving through archives and getting really obsessed with this project and this filmmaker, and my favorite line in the whole thing is where he's talking about um, the quote in question, I should say, is um, Roland Walsh said, there are not 36 ways of showing a man getting on a horse. Um, kind of talking about, like, you shoot a scene a cert- like one way. Um, and the quote kind of devol- like splinters off into, like, maybe he said it about doors, maybe he said it, like, different numbers, and, like, maybe 36 is, like, just supposed to mean many versus meaning, like, a specific, like, 36. Um, and... Um, my, and he, he's talk, he's trying to get to the bottom of this and talks about how, like, 
um, in his obsession, he's like, I just downloaded all of his movies, like a hundred, like he has like a hundred and six <laughs> movies or something. He's like, I downloaded them all and like watched them all, and that's kind of like the first half of the movie that you were just watching. Um, and it's just like such an enthusiastic, like genuinely enthusiastic movie made by somebody who loves films for people who are like similarly obsessed and inclined. And I like. I've never seen such a good encapsulation. Like, filmmakers love to make movies about people who love movies, or, you know, there's so many movies about making movies and everything else. And I think this just is, like, so perfectly about, like, what it is to love, like, cinema. Cinema. Yeah, this is a, <laughs> a movie about it. Uh, so, just a, a little bit more on the first half of the film, which starts off with clips of people getting on a horse in Raoul Walsh films and then becomes what clips of people walking through doors in Raoul Walsh films and then like clips of people like like it's raining really hard and there's a storm in Raoul Walsh films and like it takes you through different things that happen a lot in Raoul Walsh films uh, which is a lot of fun and then it kind of gives you the context after and I thought well what if it's an interesting movie to think about formally because like well what if they flipped it you got all this and then you see sort of the putting into practice of this quote plus this decision to you know type Raoul Walsh into Karagarga at everything to his client <laughs> leave the computer running and go to sleep um, I think none of us have ever done obviously uh, and I thought well so what if we flipped it would that have like is it better that the film tells you what it's doing after you've had the experience to like of making your own meaning of that first half or would it in fact be more illustrative of the point if it had flipped and I thought well do these two things even need to go together like or are they just kind of sort of related by happenstance but not actually essential to what the other one offers which I actually think might be the case but I'm honestly less concerned now as I as I think through this question and what the correct answer or what the possible answers to are and just the fact that like it's posing the question in the first place it seems to me um i don't think it's incidental that i am thinking of this i think you know there's a very clear like structural conceit in the film that i think is begging this kind of question which is itself mm -hmm. quite valuable yeah uh yeah I, I love this as well and i think that like it i think the sort of that sort of question i think I wasn't necessarily thinking of it before. Like it sort of makes sense in a sort of logical way. Like you're thinking through it as you're watching it. And then there's this uh, second half uh, or last third or some, somewhere around there. Uh, but like, I think that there is sort of, there's just inherently, and I think that you see this with skillfully done super cut, super cut films, you know, things of that nature where it is just a, the sort of pleasure of watching the, both the motion within the clips and the way that they flow into each other because you know by the end it's by the end of this sort of montage you have it's basically telling a story through the through the matching actions and you know characters walking and then walk walking and then it's a completely different character or like from a different film walking into frame but like the way that they're sutured together creates that illusion mm -hmm. um like where it is just this sort of very flowing very very playful sort of evocation of you know the, the way characters in Raoul Walsh films move through doors or get on horses and then there and then you have the um the 
like the the last section reminded me and actually in a lot of ways of Mario Mariano Inez and the sort of way his films you know use this the rapid narration of in order to convey the actions of his characters and it was extremely fun seeing that applied to film academics and this just this one like he's just referred to as the professor I don't I pres- like I this was all written and this is all like sort of fiction but still it it does feel very consonant with that innate desire to learn more and to correct yourself and to uh you know drag everyone you know into the into the pursuit if necessary and you know it and it is just because i'm pretty sure that all the actual names to use are you know actual critics uh and you know that's ranging from uh pe- people like uh Ricardo Kozarinski to David Borwell on down and it it just feels so you know embracing of the of the value they can find both in textbooks in these you know sort of glossy um glossy hardbacks to the sort of pdfs and he mentioned several times the condition of the pdfs uh of, of the film journals that that he's referencing and you and you and the film the that section is mostly black screen unless he's bringing up text or or these um or pictures of magazines and so on and so forth and i i, I will say that I, i'm very shamefully uh, lacking in my raw walsh viewing i watched the big trail before this so i could have that sort of uh frame of of western in mind but i think that in some sense it is just so like within like it's very clearly setting up its own constraints and i think it does it works run wonders with them uh, yeah I, I, I yeah it's a very wonderful film that i hope uh, and it's only 63 minutes i mean it's not necessarily you would expect it to be much longer than that but still it has a nice concision to it even within this sort of a uh, um in, in this yeah, framework. it's hilarious. And I mean, I think the other thing about this film, too, is that, like, the second half poses a question to you about, like, are there or are there not 36 or many ways of showing a man getting on a horse? And it, like, makes you immediately want to go back and, like, mm-hmm. rewatch the first part and be like... Um, right, and right. Actually, the first time we were watching it, I, we had started it, and I think maybe... Um, like our stream broke or there was a distraction in the house and Forrest was like, oh, I like lost count because he had like started watching it, like trying to count <laughs> how many different times we were seeing people get on a horse. And afterwards he was kind of like, oh, like the answer is obviously like there's a million different ways of showing somebody getting on a horse because the context is different. The framing is different. Like, and I was like, no, no, no. Like there's, there aren't that many ways because like you only see them get on the horse, like over the back or like up the side. Like there's only two ways of showing somebody get on a horse actually. <laughs> so it's just like a fun movie to like even like yeah. bring its own question back to itself. Like I could watch that movie <laughs> 50 times in a row. <laughs> yeah. And I would say this is also, this is an extremely hilarious film, especially in that, in that second chapter. Ran, 
जीन आला काल भाती सितुके नाल युगाचा आंदा खेल डोलेच केले घाल सावात दिसे चोर खुबडात दिसे मोर लहनात दिसे थोर थोरात दिसे थोर अरे भले भले भुलेले भलते चगाती गानले हाय दुश्मन 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 सर्वनाशी तरी गुण गान रे uh, we'll stay in the uh, current section a little bit longer. Uh, I'm, I haven't been able to watch many shorts programs, but one I did watch was the fourth program. There are other worlds they have not told you of. Uh, I know, Forrest, you've seen some of them uh, in this section as I well. I have, but I'm going to need a refresher on which films we're actually talking about here. Oh, sure, yes. Uh, well, the films, you can pick out which ones you'd like to talk about, but the films are Sylvia Shuttlebauer's oh, this is Labor the of Love, Benver. This is the program yeah. with bangers <laughs> in it. Yeah, Ben Rivers, Look Then Below, Mary Helena Clark's Figure Minus Facts, Brock Civics, uh, While Cursed by Spectres, and Andrew Norman Wilson's In the Air If Tonight. anybody is listening to this and uh, this festival or any other festival is offering any of these films, it is absolutely worth the price of admission. Um, just for the Shadowbower film, Labor of Love, as well as the Rivers mm. film, Look Then Below. Um... I'll start with those two. Labor of Love is... Shuttlebauer's films are kind of, like, stroboscopic and kaleidoscopic, like, colorful little, like, fields of, you know, Wishing Wells, kind of the same deal here. This one has, like, a... Just, like... I don't know. How would you describe this, Ryan? It's, it's, it's just, like, colors I and mean, it's, visual, it's bit... like... Right, 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 but the the way that they're sort of organized is that like it feels like you're constantly like if not zooming in and you're like moving through these like a, as as you know these objects as these colors. It's, yeah, these, it's know, not terribly like yeah. un- terribly unlike a um, hand painted bracket film from this optical printer era, mm-hmm. except the color configurations are a little bit different. Um, mm-hmm. But it's that kind of thing, and this one has a voiceover from a, like a BBC radio monologue by the guy who wrote like the secret dial like the secret conversation or dialogue of trees or something about the way that trees mm-hmm. communicate mm-hmm. um but it's kind of this really it's just like this really like sensual lovely film that sort of i think is positing like love as a sort of entry into this strange other world and this wonderful other world and it just basically evokes that through the senses it's like not it's a hard. It's it's a film you have to see. I, I don't really know what yes. else to say about it than that. Uh, it's really lovely. Yeah, I agree. I think like this is definitely the highlight of the program for me, and I think it's just it's I, I think pretty like it, it, it's it's just it's amazing just to watch and it like especially because it blends in all these you know actual identifiable identifiable things like a you know, a human brain and you see like various parts of the body, but it is also bringing in all of these, you know, more, what you'd expect, I guess, from the sort of abstract shapes strobing, but because of the way that they're arranged, it feels like it's sucking you in. Like it feels like it's constantly bringing you closer and closer. And it like, it, it was a really transporting sort of effect. I, I really, I did really love it as well. I also thought the rivers film looked then below 
is really so it's another film that sort of takes you into other worlds and i thought this was just interesting in the context mm -hmm. of other sci-fi films which kind of for the most part try to establish some kind of connection between our world and some like futuristic world that takes place like on another planet or in space like you know you have like the desert planet or the ice planet in star wars or whatever and like you know blade runner is just <laughs> like a you know like dystopian urban environment that looks like some combination of like you know like Hong Kong or Singapore, which is like lots of skyscrapers and it's really crowded. Mm -hmm. And Look Down Below is like a deliberately strange and unfamiliar looking sci-fi film. It's shot in the, I guess they're called the Wookiee Hole Caves in Somerset in the UK. Um, and then it, you know, transforms them visually through computer tricks. And um, even though a lot of it is actually shot on 16, uh, so you end up with like really mm -hmm. iridescent oceans and strangely colored skies and rocks and like stalactite formations that are just really bizarre. And it's like this great way of reminding us that like sci-fi can be weird it doesn't have to be like a film like mm -hmm. everyone you know sci-fi is about what it means to be human or like it takes place in the future but it's really about the present <laughs> and, like, you know all the cliches <laughs> of sci-fi um that i think are true across both you know a hard and soft eastern and western sci-fi as true of wells as it is of lem or the strigotskis and this film is just kind of like mm -hmm. a sci-fi can be really weird and the the idea of like strange otherworldly places can look genuinely like bizarre and unfamiliar even though they have to be shot obviously right here mm -hmm. yeah I, I i liked it i i think that oh well, uh for slight context i, I watched it's part of the part of a trilogy of ben rivers projects that also includes his 2011 feature slash compilation of shorts slow action which i watched just before and uh earth which i was spelled the u which i don't believe is popped up anywhere um but like it's sort of interesting because slow actions you know comprised entirely of of shots of actual um locations with like a little bit of effects like sometimes there's you know the the it it's a negative image like the the film is reversed um but there's pretty extensive sort of CGI work done here, at least as far as I could tell. And so it was sort of strange watching it in that context right after the sort of very grounded sort of materialist um, depiction of these sci-fi worlds or like the evocation of these sci-fi worlds. And here, like, it's a bit... Uh, like, I'd be curious to see it again, definitely. Uh, but, like, it felt maybe a little bit more... Like, it felt maybe more just purely about the sort of vibe or mood of it then then like i don't feel it necessarily developed in the way that i was uh quite hoping for but i do think that you know just purely visually i think it is quite quite remarkable yeah um if we want to sort of go through the rest of the program fairly i mean uh, those are uh, for me the two highlights i think the the mm -hmm. figure minus fact the mary helena clark film that is also kind of just evoking the idea of mourning through montage is quite good. Um, While Cursed by Spectres kind of takes clips from the Strapulate class relations, strips of people out of them and transforms them in uh, interesting ways. And then In the Air Tonight is a pretty funny sort of take on the, the Phil Collins song um, that sort of makes up a fictional story for it. Um, I like all five of these films, of those first two. And then Mary Hannah Clark's films, I always have trouble like finding out what precisely I like about them. But part of it is just like her editing is really <laughs> interesting. Like she plays with visual rhymes and color and like she's very formalistic without being 
mm-hmm. but at the same time it's not the kind of like you know new american c- cinema of you know brackage and frampton and people like that it's like she has her own kind of montage that is quite evocative and good mm-hmm. yeah yeah i liked all of them as well i think that i did have some trouble with the with figure minus fact i think that uh michael shinsky really loved it and his write-ups absolutely worthwhile i think that like i was just having some trouble exactly piecing together like it, it the montage of it while like it had some evocation but did feel a little bit arbitrary especially because it's mixes these uh different formats so freely but i think that there is definitely i, I think it definitely looks very good and like especially like the just the isolated pieces themselves are quite interesting i just don't know if it came together quite the way that uh i was hoping for um in the air tonight is definitely a bit of a lark i guess you could say and i know there are people who really love it people who really hate it but i think that you know it, it's uh, uh the 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 way it develops i think is you know it's fun and, and you know the, the song is great and you do hear a good a good chunk of it uh especially just looped um certain elements of it are looped for quite a long while um and i actually did really like well cursed by specters i as i i can actually i'm actually not quite certain if people were moved or it's simply like i thought during the screen uh while i was watching it that it was just um it was just all the shots in class relations without people. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, and, and, I, if I, I said yeah. without people, okay. I don't think I meant. I, I didn't mean to say the people are removed so much as they are shots. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's just yeah, that okay. Seinfeld compilation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, you could, you could, you could call it that. Uh, but I, I liked it a good deal, and I think that you know it works well. Like class relations, it makes sense specifically that struggle film because that film's all about the sort of uh about the earth at space of germany standing in for the america of kafka's novel and i think that it you know it, it gets at exactly the the notions of space and city that work really well and of course the i think chivik almost i think that he was thinking of the last shot of class relations which, which is this long shot from a train of this pond or this, this enormous lake um and i think he worked from there like that was the sort of concession because it's the i think the longest shot of the film without any people and it's sort of this very good um summation or like or final release from from the film and so i think it it works on that level and i do want to shout out his feature his second feature belonging which was in new director's new films last year or two years ago last year um which I think is uh, really fantastic. Uh, moving back to the main slate, uh, another another new filmmaker, and uh, I think a really interesting filmmaker. This is and a very long-awaited return for India, back in the main slate after a fairly shameful 24 years. Uh, this wow. is Chaitanya Tamane's The Disciple. Jason, would you like to take this? Yeah, um... So I'm sure the immediate crude logline someone will attach to this when it comes out is this is the Indian whiplash. Uh, <laughs> and in and in uh, so many ways, that's a very dumb summation of it. But it is this it's this interesting film about a 
young-ish musician uh, mm-hmm. was once young, now is aging into his 30s. Uh, and it's about his ultimate goal to pursue this older traditional classical style of Indian music uh, called Raj? Uh, well, like the it's the music tradition itself is sort of, is the Kyle music tradition, uh, North Indian. Uh, right, but, like, they, but they, they refer rocks. to it as R A A G. I don't know. If yeah, they, they they perform rocks. It, rocks. It's the okay. specific. Yeah, yeah. Right. He's he's uh, very much pursuing this, and very much sees himself as part of this lineage, and it's actually a pretty interesting movie about artistic ambition and where you draw scopes and how you form canons and where you where you mm-hmm. build your mentors up and and it's this movie that's kind of pulling in six different directions in this main character's head and it's very much glued into his perspective for almost the entire movie um mm-hmm. about how his father also performed the same type of music but he was never successful and he grew very bitter because mm-hmm. of that and now he is trying not to be like that, but also is <laughs> not particularly self-aware and does not realize that he basically is that at this point. Um, how he's trying to keep certain traditions alive. How he's certain. How he's how he's trying to refine his craft, but he may not be the most naturally talented musician. Um, it's it's all of these different facets of artistic identity all kind of being juggled at once. Um, and I think the movie does a re- actually genuinely a really, really, really good job balancing all of these. I ultimately don't know that I particularly like love the movie. Um, I, I think that sometimes the movie may be a little bit too plugged into the main character's POV uh, to the point where it loses certain... Sp- scopes of things and the movie does a good job to pop his somewhat limited pov a couple times but mm-hmm. uh overall it's this it's this very fascinating movie about history and where one finds themselves in terms of an artistic lineage that means something to your culture and and how you can try and continue it but at what cost if you're not willing to change with time and and if you make certain people in your life these unimpeachable idols uh what happens mm-hmm. um yeah i'm curious what everyone else thought of it they saw it. um i saw it so i saw the disciple with um <clears throat> excuse me at the toronto film festival and um it's i i really like the movie uh it's not one of my like it's not like my favorite of the year but i think it's one of the most accomplished films of the year in terms of mm-hmm. its execution and what he's doing uh yeah i mean what jason said it, it is being called like a an indian whiplash already which is um which <laughs> I, like like you know i get it and of course people like to just connect things to the to the tiniest amount of distance between them and I mean, I would, I and I have a whole other thing where I can say that Damien just. I think Whiplash and La La Land are like the quintessential millennial films, and this, you know. <laughs> but that's a different topic. So no, this this is uh, it, it touches on similar ideas of, um, you know, aspirations and dreams, and kind of 
really reckoning with I think a lot of the the messaging and what you know people in that lead character's generation because it starts out when he's in his 20s mm. um people in his generation have kind of been conditioned to you know this idea of like if you just doggedly pursue what you want and your dreams will really come true and you know it just is it's all about like the effort it's not so much um you know like if, if you really believe in it you know the talents and everything will fall will follow through and here's a guy that you know basically does all the things that he thinks would get him that and he doesn't get that and watching the film it is about two hours and 10 minutes sorry to harp on run times again but <laughs> all i'm saying with that is that it is a bit of a uh there are times where it can be pretty like uh deliberate in its pacing and i'm sure that people might be turned off by the film entirely by the musical performance sequences because they might just turn around and go oh not my thing which is stupid but anyway uh, i already see it happening but it, it's the film is deliberate but i think it really re- rewards that investment of time because as you watch the film and you realize that this is about a man who is coming to terms with the realization that he is that his dream and his aspirations are really never going to be achieved or not to the way that he wants and it is very relatable in that sense because i think the film proceeds with it as like a death by a thousand cuts rather than anything truly definitive and so you have these kinds of slow uh and tiny moments of like small degradations or small disrespect or small things that just weigh on him and you really do feel that journey um you really feel that while you're watching the film Mm -hmm. and i don't think it would really work as well as it does otherwise and i one thing i really like about uh uh, chaitanya tamani's direction here is that um while it is primarily about this one man uh so much in the film i was thinking about how it has this kind of very humbled god's eye point of view and watching Mm -hmm. it like it's so much is just like it it unfolds in long takes it's very distant so medium to long shot Mm -hmm. and there are moments in the crowd where you can't really pick him out instantly you have to kind of seek a little bit and i felt that Mm -hmm. this was really smart in what it was doing and i felt like the film was ahead of him in showing his place within Mm -hmm. this within the world of the film and that you're seeing him eventually come to realize you know what has already been communicated to us just the direction from frame one so i think it's really really intelligently constructed and that's what i mean by how well accomplished it is so it's one of the highlights for me but i i I also feel like this is a film that would have really benefited from being seen in a theater where you have to kind of just Mm -hmm. force yourself to watch it it's much harder because of this deliberate pacing to really uh take it at home but definitely a worthwhile film that i hope people are going to actually you know see in the future I just second all of that. I think you really hit the nail on the head, and that's I agree with everything you just said. Um, it makes me sad that people are turned away from it because of the subject matter, the music. Um, that was like such a big draw to me. I find it like a super, um, like a very very accessible film, despite having absolutely zero knowledge of anything about North Indian music. Um, I there. When we first started watching it, I was kind of like, oh no, like, I don't know anything about how to judge, like, quality of this, like, it's, um, um, a very, like, improvised style of singing, and so, like, I was just like, I have no idea how to judge if he's good or not, um, but the film really helps people, uneducated people like myself, um, keep up with it, um, so I would just add that if you're nervous about, um, like not having a bank of knowledge going into it, it helps you along pretty well. Yeah, it, I, it, I, it's, oops, sorry, go ahead. 
No, I just say I wanted to say it's worth mentioning that Chaitanya Tamani, the director himself, had no knowledge or had very limited knowledge of this oh, material so interesting. before he started making the film. And he kind of just dove into it head first. So yeah, it, and you're right, it's definitely made up that way. And I think it's just absolutely... I've seen people who are just like, oh, I'm just not into the music. And I'll be like, you're an idiot. Like, it's a new yeah. thing. Just, like, take this new thing in. And it may not relate to you, but, like, get It's also yourself. beautiful. I wanted but to just add that um, the main character is a musician himself. Like, he actually, like, studies the music. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the performances in it are gorgeous. The performances are also, like, never more than a few minutes at a time. Like, you can listen to a song that you don't like. It's not that big of an ask. I'll also say, I mean, I basically right. agree with everything that everyone has said, except I'll push back a little bit. I don't think this film is really that slowly paced, personally. I think it moves along pretty well. Yeah. Um, the one thing I'll say is, I think it's really smart to not require of the viewer to be able to recognize like genius of a form that is going to be unfamiliar to most of us, at least most of us sitting on this continent. Uh, like we all are, uh, <laughs> like one of the things that is often hard to do in a work of art is like convince people that your fictional character is like a genius, you know, like Nabokov can do it. And like Kislovsky pulls it off in blue and like, you know, Rivette takes the easy way out, not the easy way out. He finds an elegant way out of it. <laughs> um, in the movie I can't think of about painting the woman, um, not thank you. And I actually could think of it. I just want to embarrass myself with poor French. Um, but so I, I was worried that, but I, the point I, I bring all this up because I was worried that I'd be in a situation where I'm asked to recognize like some level of brilliance or genius in the performance of this type of music of which I know absolutely nothing. And the movie does not ask that of you. And it's great that it doesn't ask that of you in part because again, most of us wouldn't catch it but also it's doing something entirely different that is equally valid which is it's about somebody who wants to get to that level but doesn't um yeah it's the, go, ahead, go ahead it's the classic oops sorry it's the uh it's the classic story of the last chrysanthemums problem of <laughs> oh i have absolutely no basis with this art form i have no idea how to tell if he's bad or good and then, like, the vast majority of the movie hinges on that fact. But the movie irons it out, and, uh, it, I mean, it has it has a bunch of very, very particular viewpoints. The vast majority of the movie seems like it happens in around 2006, which is a very specific mm-hmm. choice. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the movie is about, like, digitizing and the advent of the internet changing the way that older generations connect with newer generations very lcd sound system losing my edge in that sense uh <laughs> but but it, it 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 is if you were to have to compare it to something like whiplash whiplash is a movie about artistic ambitions that does not have a character that's interesting enough to actually look inside his head so it makes a fictional character to scream and yell at him and thankfully this movie does not have that problem where the vast majority of what's interesting about the movie is the way in which this man builds himself into corners and you know you're talking about how how it's it's this very like uh it's this very almost boomer mindset to be like well, it's just about effort and you know and there's a point where he's singing poorly and his guru's like you didn't 
you practiced, right? You should get it. And it's like, it's not that simple. Like, I appreciate what you're saying, but at the same time, it's like, just because he practiced doesn't mean he's good. <laughs> it's not the same thing. Um, there are times at which I, I, I am not in love with certain decisions it has. It really likes to lean on these tapes uh, that were his father's guru or and his guru's guru, I think. Um, these tapes that she recorded that are these like mantras of exactly how you need to proceed with the art form. And ultimately the movie does kind of disrupt that. But there's a large mm-hmm. part of the movie where it's like it's trying to get you into his headspace and it really, really sticks with these with these tapes and these slow motion shots of him listening to the tapes and him trying to psych himself mm-hmm. up. And uh, there's a degree in which I'm uh, I, I'm not quite positive how I feel about its insistence on sticking you so directly in his space. But the the ultimate narrative arc that it takes you on is very worthwhile. And I would recommend this to pretty much everyone. It's it's, the, it is the type of thing where it's like, if this wins like the best foreign language film Oscar, like people should actually be happy for once. Cause at least it's a damn yeah. decent movie. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I haven't seen whiplash, so I didn't have that as like a reference point. <laughs> and my reference point for this was actually, um, it reminds me so much of the writer, like not formally at all, not in the way it's mm. made, but just in terms of like a story about somebody who is facing like this insurmountable obstacle of like wanting to be good at something and like for di- completely different reasons, not being able to achieve that. Um, and I like the first time I saw the writer, I reacted to it um, in part because like it's very unusual to see a story about like the development of an artist or in that case, like a, like a rodeo writer. Um, and like not have some sort of like fulfilling outcome and like not to say too much about the end of the disciple um which i think could be actually interpreted different ways but like i think it's really interesting to see a film where it's like this person isn't the best at what they're doing this isn't like a story about somebody um who's gonna you know go on and win like like when um like india's got talent or whatever the show is he's watching in it um and it's just like a really interesting story to tell yeah i i did love the film also for many of the reasons uh i do i do think like it's sort of like i do think it's like it it's situated very well like in the middle like where it is more deliberately paced but it's just like it's very clear it's what it's doing i think and it, it looks gorgeous it and just all of these crowd shots all the i actually do love the motorcycle shots just like just how how carefully they unfold like it and the sort of disrupting effect that you mentioned later on with the tapes does definitely help with that um but i, I do think that the narrative it's it might almost be too preordained like you know exactly where he's heading from from basically frame one but that being said like it the way it takes those journeys the way lays out like partly to do with pacing partly to do with the way that just these when the camera pushes in it you know exactly what it's for and i think that just the way the two work hand in hands and work uh i i I thought really well Uh, and i do also want to say two things uh one uh, it's i i think it's secretly 
one of the most perceptive films I've seen about new media and about the way that media has developed and the internet has developed over like after the especially after the time skip uh, the there's a scene of him debating whether to send a YouTube comment which is just extremely hilarious to me uh, just just watching the sort of mortification uh, so of good. that of, of, of that site yeah and, and also I'm like you know writing a perfunctory Facebook post uh, and also as someone who has worked in uh, a, a few archives I think that the just the way it uses archives is is really interesting I think really gets at the sort of heritage that he's str- he's both revering but also struggling with uh, I, I think it really gets at those those sort of forces uh, looming in on him uh, I do want to uh, as you might be able to tell, and as I stated on the previous uh, previous episode, I, I have been sort of letting uh, other people sort of lead the discussion, but I do want to take the reins just briefly uh, to talk about a film in the revival section, which I, I know that people haven't seen uh, on this call, uh, but which I think is exceedingly great and a highlight. That this is a very stacked section, of course, and you know, very some very great films: Flowers of Shanghai, Damnation, Mood for Love. Chao talk, uh, but the film I do want to shout out, and which I think, which I just want to spotlight for a brief moment, is Mary Claude Trelew's Simon Barbet or Virtue, which is I think uh, a previous guest and good friend Evan Morgan sort of described it as a film that he's almost surprised hasn't become uh, a film Twitter hit, you know, uh, and like that sort of idea because it is so, I, I, and I I think this is a really magnificent film uh, and to give some context it came from uh the sort of loose diagonal movement uh sort of led by uh paul vecchiali and it it comes from the production company that he started diagonal which uh also included filmmakers like uh adolfo arietta uh jean-claude billet um jean-claude Giguet, and and trelu and this is uh basically a 77 minute film uh, one night, one night sort of film, uh, following the titular character, uh, and basically it takes place in three segments. The first half, or uh, it's it's pretty segmented into into thirds. The the first part takes place at essentially a porn theater that she is sort of the manager of, and also she helps sell tickets. And her interactions with the with her coworker there, and uh, dealing with relationship problems. Uh, men who are who try to sneak into other theaters so they can watch two for the price of one, uh, and and it's just so well modulated. You and it's you hear just the, as people enter in, you just hear the sounds of fucking going around, uh, going around <laughs> as as the doors swing open and close. And it's just the way that the interactions play out in in the film in general, but especially here where it's just so. It, it operates at such a rhythmic pace and then second third is her at uh, at a lesbian club that she attends and she is sort of, sort of interacting but also it sort of shifts focus to be more about the sort of denizens there and then the last third is her uh, she hitches a ride with this sort of uh, almost morose sort of gentleman play, uh, who's a croupier played by Michelle Delahaye and it's just this, like, one of the great one-scene performances, just observing 
just observing the way that th these two people in this very confined uh, confined space interact. Uh, it's it's been a few months since I've seen it. Obviously, many things have happened since then. But I do think it is just I I recommend it without hesitation to anyone interested in this sort of mood. I think it's one of the great films about this sort of drifting sense within the night, the sense of both existing within and without a, a community and just finding your way around, just trying to, uh, trying to make the best way that you can. And I think that it's, it's, it's just so lovely, so heartbreaking in its own way. Uh, I'm maybe not doing the best job of selling it, but I think it is just wonderful beyond all measure. I'm sold. And moving, yes, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Uh, uh, moving back to the main slate, uh, this is another film by a very <laughs> love, beloved director uh, and beloved director by the festival. This is Swimming Out Till the Sea Turns Blue, directed by Jajun Ke, uh, a documentary from him. Uh, first, would you like to take this since you're writing about it? Yeah. Uh, so this film is a documentary focusing primarily on three authors uh, born about 10 years apart from one another. I think it's in 52, 60, and 72, I want to say. Um, all of whom are rural writers um, and are sort of forebears to Ma Feng, um, who wrote very sort of romantic tales of revolutionary peasants and was also instrumental in um, designing like a filtration system that allowed them to grow food on the very like alkaline laden and salty soil um, in some of, the, some of the provinces of China. And he kind of just, you know, you basically go from one author to the next and they tell you about their childhood and different, you know, initiatives or part of the cultural revolution and their careers which are um, themselves interesting, but of course, because this is a Zha film, it's really about the progress of China, right? The progress, the costs and the mm -hmm. uh, sort of rewards of progress. Uh, one of the things I sort of talk about in my piece, which will probably be published in the coming week, is uh, the sort of acceptance of, there's more acceptance of change in this than I'd say probably any of his fiction films um, the last two two most recent possibly accepted um, there's a really wonderful sequence where you see um, a shot from platform um, there's one that will show like a, a mural from the beginning of the film and there's another from near the end mm -hmm. of platform of a street um, in Fenyang Zha's hometown um, of a street and it's just two lines of drab dilapidated buildings like a single car on it in the distance and there's just street sweepers and it's really gray and you get those shots you get first you get, you get the, the mural at the beginning and then you get the present day and instead of like peasants hanging around chatting passing around cigarettes first of all now the mural is of like telecom towers and skyscrapers and it's like tourists taking pictures um and then you get the street and then you get the, the street today and it's like a boulevard it's like a very heavy thoroughfare with cars parked on both sides and driving and bicyclists all over and you know big stores with like you know like lit signs and 
people performing on the streets and like all sorts of things. And there's, there's a lot more acceptance. Like you don't get the the displaced workers of Twenty First City or the alienated youth of Unknown Pleasures anywhere in there. It's just like here's what it was and here's what it is. Um, but it's not all celebratory, mm -hmm. of course. Um, a lot of the writers, um, my pronunciation of Chinese is not great, but it's um, <laughs> Zha Pinghua, no relation to the director, uh, Yu Hua, and Liang Hong. Um, First and third are, 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 are uh, good. Yeah? Good. Uh, yeah, <laughs> thank yeah. you. Uh, <laughs> and so... Um, and uh, again, because they're about 10 years apart, they grew up in different circumstances. But, you know, Zha talks about like living in a 22 or 23 person family and they're all fed from a single walk. And about his dad, who mm -hmm. was maybe going, thinking about attending a meeting in the 40s, like the late 40s, near the end of the Civil War. Um, and ended up not going. And then later the meeting was reclassified as actually being a Kuomintang secret like um, service or secret agent meeting or whatever. And because he was on the list to maybe attend, he was branded as a rightist um, and got sent to a labor camp. And now his son, Zha, like, can't find a job. He talks about like he was turned down from everything because his dad was tarred for this meeting he didn't even attend. Um, so it's very, like it is examining very even-handedly both the costs and um rewards of um one could say progress but really a certain level of urbanization um and the loss mm -hmm. of the rural cult rural culture that all three authors come from and all three of them write about uh, there's a great scene with um her son near the end the last author um and he's wearing bose headphones talking about how his grandfather might not have had enough food when he was a kid. So it's like in two generations, we've gone from not mm -hmm. enough food to eat as a child to like noise canceling Bose headphones. And it's t and then the cost of that is he doesn't know how to introduce himself in his native dialect because now he lives in a city. Mm. So there's this loss of mm -hmm. culture that comes with this remarkable economic progress, which is what the film is really about. And of course it's not the sort of, you know, virtuoso like aesthetic feat of Jaws fiction films but it's also like a great window into um, authors who are not especially well known here um, you you wrote um, To Live which became um, the Zhang Yimou film so that one's maybe a little bit better known um, but these are like great Chinese writers who are not especially well known here so what, I think what it lacks in you know the sort of aesthetic prowess that you find in still life or whatever it makes up for and mm -hmm. like giving you a window into other artists who are on the same level um so yeah good film watch it yeah i have uh two things to add uh one is that ever since especially uh ever since especially touch of sin came and played con and there was censorship issues and things like that i think the part of the common refrain about zhezhenka's movies is his criticism of certain elements of chinese government of chinese culture of chinese urbanization and i think 
a really thing that a, a thing that's really easy to lose in especially our very western centric view of his movies is how much like actual love and care he does have for china for its history for its people uh and you think back to something like mountains may depart and how much of the that how much joy and wonder and and genuine love there are in the first two sections of that movie um even in in bleaker movies of his it it's still kind of there and the nice refreshing thing about this movie is while it definitely is for said is not uh scared to talk about very specific realities in which are not positive it is overwhelmingly uh this film about how much this culture means to these people and how much it's it's ultimately rooted and even though how how far they've come they're really not that far away from these things um definitely and i i think it's a I think it's a really, really beautiful movie that leads into my second thing, which is actually, it's not shocking, but Zhizhenka actually comes up with a lot of different, really interesting, unique staging mechanisms to make a movie that is, you know, I don't know, 70% talking heads, not feel like it's all talking heads, whether it's... um, images that don't directly link to what's being discussed to even just the choice of location a lot of times talking head documentaries will try and limit the amount of information in the frame so that you focus on the person's face and it's like this movie's the complete opposite where it has these people in front of these really specific backdrops where you kind of can very easily get lost in the spaces they're in. And then ultimately the whole movie is about the context of their culture and where they come from and what these places mean to them. And, you know, it, it ultimately does only make the movie not only like visually a lot more dynamic than most talking head movies, but even adds to the richness of precisely what they're talking about is the, the staging is this really electric unique environments when it's a jaw film do we have to tell people they should see it (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't have much more to add except um to just piggyback off what forrest was saying about this being like a really useful um like little decipher for his fiction films um just in terms of like looking back at um, these kind of like through lines of the tension between like what the modernization of China has cost. Um, I mean, my favorite Jaw film is Still Life, and just like even in that, which is like about like the literal destruction of these towns for um, the building of the dam and everything else, um, is kind of doing the same thing just in a documentary space. Um, yeah, and I think it's just like a really useful um, little film for like understanding what preoccupies him. Yeah, I wasn't able to catch. I'll actually probably watch it tomorrow, <laughs> tomorrow or something like that, uh, to make f- way for the other for the last two films. Uh, but I'm obviously very excited. Jaw is Jaw's documentaries. I do think are 
I they're if not I don't love them as much as his uh as has his fiction films. Uh but it's nice as it's definitely nice to see see them in the festival and this is the the first only other one that's been only other if it's straight ahead documentaries that's been in the main slate other uh besides uh useless from 2007 which is quite good also uh but yeah i'm I'm very excited to see it and uh we'll close out with a sort of whopper of a double header uh these are two the two most recent uh feature films by the prolific or newly prolific newly recognized uh heinz emigholtz the last city which was at berlin um don't remember what section uh but the the last city and the lobby which has its world premiere here cj would you like to take it sure uh these are the first Heinz Emigel's films I've seen but I've you know been and looking up on these films my understanding is that uh, he's kind of carved out a space for himself for a while making these very uh, these films about architecture architectural films is usually how they're described where he's kind of filming and exploring various architectural spaces mm-hmm. and um, and then uh, I forget it might have been two years ago or three years ago he made five films he released five films within one year they all showed at <laughs> Berlin Film Festival and the one that really stood out for people was called uh, Streetscapes Dialogue where mm-hmm. you had these two characters who were just engaging in um, conversation which is apparently based off of Heinz Evangel's own uh, therapy sessions mm-hmm. and this was a complete departure for him for people and it I think reinvigorated interest in his work so now he has The Last City which um, I, the same two actors from Dialogue are in this as well, but playing different characters, though there are references to those characters. To yeah. At least that's how I understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, the film is structured as into five parts, I guess, with mm-hmm. kind of a wraparound for the end. And um, every sequence is two different people, primarily, who are having a conversation in a different city in the world. And Heinz Emigel's, um, there are so many ideas and, and thoughts and stuff that flow throughout this film. Uh, one of the major ones is about taboo and transgression, and this film is very much um, about kind of being transgressive and, tam- and taboo in terms of its entire construction. These are, you know, mm-hmm. just basically a series of two-handers, and yet the scenes flow with constant shots, not really shot reverse shot, I guess, but just like it'll just arbitrarily cut mid-sentence and suddenly they are in a completely different area and the angles are always, almost always like canted uh, angles. Um, And for me, I mean, (laughs) there are people who clearly this film is not for. I've seen some very, very strong negative reactions to this. Um, For me, I had a total blast with it. I really thought it. I, I, the middle section kind of was losing me a bit because it started bringing in the the, the there's a there's one of the conversations between a Japanese woman who's really a German actor and then a, a Chinese woman who is basically trying to convince a Japanese woman to kill herself for Japan's war crimes uh, in World War Two and then the film is suddenly diving into that and showing photos and I'm like okay well this is taking mm-hmm. really strange dark term not really sure what's going on and then by the end i think that final section i was just like laughing so much and i love how the film is able to engage with these very 
heady ideas and people complain that the dialogue is you know made, it's the acting is bad but i think that in itself is kind of a transgression or a taboo <laughs> and um it's so much about like giving a middle finger to convention it has all these big ideas but it's doing it in such like a playful and absurd and silly way which is i think like the for me the right way to do it mm-hmm. um people have compared this to mom Krog because the conversations can be <laughs> so and it's like no um, that's a very surface level reading and, um, <laughs> but this is, uh, I, I think it knows how to, it, it doesn't take itself especially, uh, seriously, which I think is much to its benefit. So for me, I thought it was a really deranged film, but very, very funny <laughs> and entertaining. And the lobby? Oh yeah. The lobby, which is, um, sort of, um, I, I unfortunately forgot the actor's name because one of the actors, John Edmund, right? Uh, John Erdman. Erdman, John, yes. Mm-hmm. John Erdman, yeah. So, oh, I should have known Tony, but yeah, John Erdman. And um, <laughs> he he, um, he was uh, in Streetscape Dialogue, I believe, and uh, mm-hmm. he was in Last City. So the, the lobby is essentially, it's, been, it's, it's just a giant monologue. And he is sitting in various lobbies across Buenos Aires and delivering this monologue, which is primarily fixated on the idea of death. Mm-hmm. Um... And it is, you know, similar to Last City in that it covers so much ground, you know, it talks about a ton of things. This is, you know, also very meta and playful, you know, it's kind of, you know, he's, he's attacking the director at some point, but of course <laughs> he's not literally attacking the director. He claims the movie is entirely his, which it isn't. Um, this one, you know, I enjoyed it, uh, but I think the fact that these two films are programmed at the same year kind of makes it natural to be comparing them. Mm-hmm. And their approaches are similar. His direction, his directorial approach is pretty much identical, but now it's just focused on one character. So for me, this had slightly more diminishing returns than uh, the Last City because it is just focused on one guy, primarily talking about one big theme. But he kind of you know jumps all over the place, uh, bouncing off from that. Uh, but it's still you know. Um, they're both really worthwhile films. I you know I do want to go and dive into Heinz Emigols' uh, previous work. Not only just the the five, five films that he made several years ago, but his prior work as well to see. Because my understanding is that he's shooting in a way that's similar to his prior films, but just having people, you know, <laughs> being the focus mm-hmm. rather than the landscapes. Right. Um, so yeah, it's 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 an acquired taste, which I mean, it's currents, which is expected. <laughs> but uh, if you go along with the if you go with the flow on both these films, I think you're going to have a really really good time. CJ's a hammer. Nail on the head again. Last <laughs> City's really good. Yeah, it. I. I will. I mean, I. I just. I'm thinking about like there are people who are just compl- like I. I think I'm definitely like responding to attacks I've seen on the film. You know, mm-hmm. whether it's in social media reviews and stuff, who just are people who I don't think get it mm-hmm. in any way. Like this is they think it's so like oh it's so like ridiculous and these conversations are so all over the place well i want to be like this is a movie like in the last city where it's like two brothers are like having sex with each other non-stop and the mom is elated she's like i'm so happy my sons are having sex with each other because i have a loving family it's like how can you watch this movie like really come away being like oh geez it's so you know like academic of all it's just such a ridiculous line of argument the film it it it's it has fun with it and that's exactly mm-hmm. what i think it, it, it's willing to like talk about these ideas i remember the final section which has that really crazy ending with the 
car accident <laughs> as well. Which, um, but I mean, the, 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 the final one is the idea of like, are we the only, you know, advanced intelligent species in the entire universe? Or maybe we're just super stupid and there are like way more advanced beings that won't even bother with us. You know, and it's a topic that is just, you know, and I think he understands. Like, I can't make a film and be like dead serious about this. So mm-hmm. let's just, you know, throw in all this other crazy wackadoodle stuff along with it. Yeah, uh, I, I, and to to be clear, the two brothers, one of them is a priest and one of them is a cop. So <laughs> you have yes. all of those, and and one and the the mother is Chinese, one of the sons is Chinese, and then one of them is white. And this is not, and it's presumed they're biological. So it's you know you have all these. It's it's you could call it a like a cloud atlas sort of gambit uh, in a certain way, uh, without makeup. <laughs> but yeah, I I did really enjoy both these, and I do uh, and I I have seen streets streetscapes dialogue, which I think is uh, quite great, and I, I do really love that one. This one, these two, it's so, it's interesting because streetscapes dialogue is pretty. It's you know it's 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 a longer film for one these two are both under 100 lobbies under 80 uh streetscapes dialogue is two two hours 15 something like that uh but that one you know it's so it's very digressive but at the same time they're all sort of staying within the sort of conceit of these of these transcribed recorded therapy sessions and as such because it's uh you know it's more personal i guess you could say it's it's more it, it, it's not nearly as it, it's fairly restrained and so i was really surprised at how free freely outre uh these films get and how willing they are to be as they're willing to be nasty and they're willing to be wild and strange and i did find quite a lot to latch on in terms of them and i i do think that it, it it's interesting to see just how willing he's uh, he is to dig himself into these very uh, into like say the the whole segment with the with the Japanese woman the Chinese woman uh, where he, he will show these very graphic war wartime wartime photos and mutilations and so on and so forth but at the same time it you, and you're always try to, trying to sense exactly where he is within this and I think that because of his directorial style you sort of get the sense that it is like he's trying to always interrogate these surfaces, interrogate the the ways in which people interact, and I think that you definitely see in both. And it's and at the same time, he's very he is very willing to have in the lobby the uh, the the man who's simply called old white male. He his he says at one point the director of this film is a bitch, and you have it it it's it, it's funny. I I, I don't like. I, I can definitely see because it's so willing to be abrasive uh, that people can be very negative on it, but and and on both these films and how strange and how deliberately how deliberately off of the off of the standard way of doing things. But I think both of them are it, it they were a departure of a departure. I guess you could probably classify these as, but. I'm very interested in the way he, he does them. Yeah. I don't know. Did anyone else see these films? I Well, I yeah, I, I saw um the lot. Well, I don't know if I can say I saw the lobby since 
I I fell asleep halfway through it. This is very unprofessional, but I also feel like it's a really important part of the um, the critic going to a film festival experience mm-hmm. to fall mm-hmm. asleep at at least one press screening. So this yes. was this was my casualty this year. Yeah. I mean, there is one point even where he uh, a lot of the film ta- like he he's very specifically saying, oh, he's talking to the person sitting at the theater. Oh, yeah. Like, 10 minutes and he says oh probably half half of the theater is washed out at this point and there is one point where he says maybe you're watching this in your uh on a on a home media device and you're and you're wrapped up in you're wrapped up in your bed and like and he's like maybe you've even paused the film stopped the film slept for a while then you come back (laughs) it's me so yeah yeah. (laughs) so yeah i mean it's it, it it's playful in that sort of way and it's and I will say that I think the last city I I did find the dialogues actually harder to follow than Momkrog. Uh, Momkrog comparatively is quite focused because it, you know lasts for so long, and last city has to pack in five different dialogues within within a hundred minutes. But but I I do find both of these quite pleasurable. Uh, yeah, I I would just say quickly that uh, I mean that the, the lobby has a lot of really good lines in it. I mean, so yes. is a lot of city, but the lobby. I I like the one where he said at one point he said that you know he's like women and the Chinese want to take over the world, and I say <laughs> let them. I don't care because I am dying. Yes, which is just like such a really funny yeah. thing. Like it's just so it's so blunt. And then yes. uh, I I also would just say that that storyline in um the last city with the Japanese woman slash German woman and the Chinese woman, the way that that one ends in particular had me. Like, I was I was a bit lost with that one, and then the way it concludes at the very end, I was laughing yes. so much, and I was like, okay, all is forgiven. This yes. is such a brilliant ending. I just wish more <laughs> films had that, like, I don't give a shit attitude. I mean, and it's even better because I didn't know there was the wraparound, so I thought he was like, oh, he's not going to show what happens. Like, I guess he's not going to show it. And then he does. It does. <laughs> it's, it's so great. It's... It, the, these are these are joker movies yeah and i mean that in a good way uh on that note i think we'll uh close out this uh this dispatch and uh, thank you all for joining me once again and i very much hope that you can make it for the last week and thank you to the listener uh, we actually managed to match the uh previous time for uh the, or the previous episode's <laughs> runtime so i hope you enjoy it i think lots of wonderful films here and i hope you will uh, join us for the last uh for the last dispatch of this year uh thank thank you all very much for joining thank you ryan thanks for having you and thank you to the listener (laughs) (laughs) viewers like you listeners like (laughs) thank you Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-